Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 19th of September 2022 and this is episode 270. On this week's podcast, I talked to former Royal Navy officer Rocky Salmond about gas warfare during the Great War. Rocky is currently organising a conference on gas with the National Army Museum to be held at their Chelsea headquarters on the 15th of October 2022. More information is on our website. Rocky spoke to me from his home in the West Country. Rocky, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in gas and the Great War? Yeah, Tom, thanks for having me on. Um, in, in my early years, um, uh, I was at college and um, uh, back in 1982, I did a project on the Somme against uh, comparing it against um, Operation Market Garden. Uh, that really got me into uh, talking about the First World War and reading about it. And Mar- like a lot of people, Martin Middlebrook's um, you know, the, the, the first day of the Somme really hooked me. Um, I then joined the Navy in 1983 and um, spent 36 years there, there. So my military career sort of got in the way a little bit of my um, my real interest. But I regularly did touring and guiding on the Western Front for friends and colleagues. But gas was an intriguing part of the whole First World War, I, I, I know, and sort of the poetry of Wilfred Owen. Uh, but my military service in particular, you know, respiratory training memories. Uh, be, uh, there's a healthy fear of gas when you've been in a CS chamber uh, full, of, full of gas with a leaky respirator. But, but in my final years in the Navy, um, I was manager for uh, delivering the UK's uh, chemical and biological protection program. So I became interested in the comparisons of what our teams were doing in the present and what what, what was being done from scratch in, in 1915. Um, and as I approached retirement, I took a master's in uh, First World War Studies with um, Professor Gary Sheffield up at Wolverhampton. Uh, and my dissertation was on the importance of the medical developments through the Great War uh, on uh, gas warfare victims, and a personal interest is my great uncle Ronald Hoskins. For I didn't know this, at the, you know, for, for till quite late on in my in my life, but he was a lieutenant in the 10th Canadian Infantry, emigrated to Canada. He was killed in action in Kitchener's Wood on the 22nd, overnight the 22nd, 23rd of April. Um, did he die from gas? I don't know, and that's one of the things we'll we'll be talking about today. So, but gas is so such a fascinating subject, and its development in the war is is a quite a remarkable story. Now, this has been broadcast in mid September. I understand something's coming up in October that listeners might be interested in. Yes, we're going to we're, the Western Front Association. We are um, uh, going to be running a conference on on gas warfare in uh, uh, on Saturday, the fifteenth of October, at the National Army Museum in London. Um, and I think there's going to be a real good opportunity to cover not not just the, the just the the, the the bare bones of gas warfare that we're going to cover today, but to get some really really good presenters in into the room. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you about those later. Um, but um, uh, but just bring in uh, a lot of the um, uh, the myths and legends and the, the intricacies of gas warfare um, back in, into the front, because I think it is an important aspect of the war. And just, uh, just uh, uh, underlining that that information is on the WFA website, should you wish to listen to this podcast and do a bit of surfing. But obviously, if you're listening after mid-October, then the conference has passed. I know it sounds obvious, but sometimes people do contact us when the conference is. So let's start with the myths of gas warfare. What are the popular legends around gas and gas warfare during the Great War? 
Well, I think the first one is that um, it, it's all about gas casualties. And that's when we talk about casualties, it's those are killed, wounded or su- succumb to their wounds later on um, and caused by gas alone in this instance. Um, it, it actually accounts for a huge percentage of the total casualties during and after the war. And I think this is engraved certainly on the consciousness of certainly people in Britain um, of, about how gas warfare was used, developed in the, war, in the First World War. Uh, and it's shaped, I think, quite a bit though by a lot of emotional subjective anecdotal narratives as well so uh, and what was interesting when when i was doing my ma studies i was looking at um uh, i was on holiday in mexico and i was on a beach and i was reading william philpott's book attrition as you do on a beach in mexico uh, but a chap noticed i was reading this and he said you know that it wasn't world war one terrible you know, something on the lines of because hey, everyone died from gas poisoning um, and that's sort of really hit hit on me the fact that um you know that's that's a general feeling of of, of everyone thought um the gas was there and again it's the emotional narrative wilfred own ecstasy of fumbling you know someone dying of uh, terribly of uh, you know by by effective gas the fact that troops had to you know the, the pop everyone knows that people had to, it was terrible they had to urinate on the hankies all the time and but that wasn't necessarily the case that was quickly overcome and the anecdotal narrative is is quite often you know my great-grandfather my grandfather great-grandfather was gas terrible during the war and he had a persistent cough and um and this sort of encounter just pushed me down into that dissertation of looking at why didn't everybody die from gas injuries we know respirators became more effective as we went on but the battlefields were actually quite toxic in their own right. You didn't need a lot of gas in there. You know, there's some of the shells and the, the chemicals used in the shell um, actually seemed like you were being gas anyway. And, and I think, you know, 40 woodbine cigarettes a day is, um, uh, was, a, was a heavy um, uh, pressure on your lungs in, in those days as well. So it's a combination of factors. But, um, but according to um, Ludwig Harbour, and we'll come back to that name later, um, actually, in re- official records, there are only 6,000 um, fatalities to gas uh, from the total of British and, and Empire troops killed during the whole war. Uh, massive study done afterwards, but I'll put the entire rider on it, is that we just don't know what the real figure is because the, 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 the important thing is that when we talk about casualties, those are the people who've entered the medical clearing station. It doesn't account for the unknown soldier that was never found or, or may have, his body may have been recovered. Um, but in general terms, figures of fatalities um, are uh, c- quite a lot. But don't get me wrong here, the impact of gas is quite uh, 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 significant. Uh, you know, roughly about 186,000 of our 1,900,000 British battle casualties in France and Flanders between 1914 and 1918 were gas related. So that's almost 10% of the, the casualties. So that, that's not insignificant in, uh, in a war of attrition. So that, and that brings us neatly onto what type of gas caused these casualties and how did the technology of gas evolve over the war? Yeah, the, um, it's another myth, actually. I think that, that, um, that gas was new in the First World War, um, that, but many types of chemicals used were byproducts of manufacturing since the Industrial Revolution. So they've been around. In fact, respirators were not, it wasn't a new concept. Um, they were being used by firefighters, mine workers, uh, as well as in factories where they were making and using toxic substances. So, um, so it's not a new new concept, and that's why the Hague Conventions of 1899, 1907. We could have a whole whole discussion about those. Um, considered uh, very briefly that asphyxiating gases in projectiles, quite specifically, not cloud gas. We should note there um, w- were put in place. So they were actively talking about you know how you limit the use of gas warfare. You know, well before the war, but Germany had a monopoly um, because they had a massive textile industry, and that's where the the, the bulk of the, um, the the chemicals 
used during the First World War, that they're byproducts uh, coming out of the textile industry and they're, they're interesting Gemeinschaft or IG consortium on the Rhine. You know, they were well ahead of the game at the start of the war in terms of having, uh, you know, um, chlorine and phosgene and other substances they could use and develop into into weapons but i'll just very quickly split them into four groups um because it all depends on uh what, what a killing power of a gas does it depends on the volume you use uh how, and that depends on how you deliver it the toxicity of the substance how poison it is um the time someone's exposed to it um so if, whether you're running through it or you're in a trench and you're, you're saturated with it uh, and the persistence of the chemical structure itself so how long it lasts in the environment and, and that's affected by wind precipitation terrain trees and all sorts but but the the, the main main groups first of all is lacrimatory so that's lung irritants uh things like uh, xylyl bromide and benzyl bromide it attacks the eyes nose throat and lungs uh, anyone who as i said anyone who's been in the military or or, um, uh, or in the military now who who've been in position in the old days when they they used to use cs gas on testing our respirators will know that this is really irritating once it once it gets inside your respirator or you're exposed to it it's, it debilitates you it, it just it knocks off all your all your capacity to be, out, be able to do any work communicate do things but it can kill in extremes if you're if you're stuck in a room full of um uh, uh benzyl bromide it will kill you because it, the exposure limit it will, will gradually build and build and build and your body just wouldn't be able to deal with it anymore the next step up from that though is an injury a lung injury so chlorine Phosgene, diphosgene, chloropicrin, these are all nasty substances which are, are more toxic than, uh, than the, the lung injurance. They attack your nose, gets into your nose, into your throat, um, into your lungs, much higher degree than, than an irritant gas. But it creates an edema in the lung, which is a reaction. And so your lungs fill with water and effectively you drown if you're not treated. Um, chlorine affects the upper respiratory system, um, but phosgene is nasty. It was about six. Six to depending on how you measure it, six to ten times more powerful than chlorine gets into the lower respiratory system, uh, and it's in, it's insidious, which means that that quite often you got a whiff of phosgene, you didn't die straight away. It's actually it could be up to twenty four hours later following exertion. So you fought the battle, you breathed in a bit of phosgene, now you're humping your kit out of the front line back to safety. Um, that's where um, <clears throat> the the phosgene then kicks in uh, and starts to kill you. Um, in a uh, in a delayed fashion, and then finally we've got um, a, a couple of other um, nasties, which is vesicants, which are blister agents, and that's that's people will know mustard gas has been uh, the main one of those. It wasn't really a gas, mustard gas. It was an oily liquid that hung around for long periods once it it had been delivered by. Uh, shell the primary it, it was uh, vaporized and uh, spread around by the shell explosion but then it settled down returned to liquid form but it got onto your skin so it, even though it didn't matter how good the respirators were at that point incapacity by burning giving you blisters which came up in great welts and uh, eventually you know burst in in a watery substance it caused temporary blindness uh, a lot of the myths of you know the, the famous uh, sergeant gassed um, painting um, uh, of um, people all wearing blindfolds. Invariably, that would have been temporary. In, in the extremes, clearly, it, it, it might well have blinded some, but it's generally it was temporary blindness from mustard gas. However, if you ingested it, when you breathe it in, it was particularly nasty. And and uh, and after a shell exploded, breathing in that vapor would been would 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 invariably be fatal once it gets inside your lungs. Um, finally, we've got um, a couple of others, which sternitators, um, which are respiratory 
irritants, uh, things like diphenylchlorazine. Uh, they're later used. They're actually chemical powders. They're not gases. Um, what they're designed to do is really unsportingly. It's meant to um, uh, it's meant to get into the respirator because the particles are smaller than than uh, uh, chlorine molecules, and it's meant to induce vomiting and sneezing. So you take your gas mask off to then get hit by um, you know a nastier form of um, lethal gas, which is released at the same time. Um, and finally, um, and I'll just very very quickly systemic toxic or blood agents. Um, the French use, use them quite a bit, things like hydrogen cyanide, but that basically poisons your blood, taxes circulatory system and incapacitates you. But there, there are hundreds of chemicals used across the battlefield and, uh, and invariably in cocktails to, um, to make um, the life mis uh, an absolute misery for, for people. But that's where I go back to the fact that things like lidite, for example, in high explosive shells they would produce if you, if you breathe in a whole bunch of gas from a, a shell that's exploded next to you you would get very much the same symptoms as uh, as some of the more lethal gases um but um and i suspect that's why one of, one of the reasons the germans often claim that the allies use gas first is because we use lidite which is very similar to being gassed when you breathe in the fumes so that leads me to my next question about the operational use of gas. Who used what when? Yeah, it's um, it's a that's a that's a great um uh, uh subject, and and I think you've got to read a a, a lot a lot of um um uh, literature on that to see what the whole picture is. But um, I always take it from a, a chap called um, C. G. Douglas, who was Royal Army Medical Corps in in the war. He 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 wrote a lot on after the war, and he he summarised it into the the First World War. You could break it down into three main groups. It's uh, April nineteen fifteen to August nineteen sixteen is the period of cl cloud gas attacks, um, and then the period of lethal shell when they start put it into shells is July 1916 to July 1917 and then mustard gas period is till the end of the war it's not as simple as that because these periods all run into each other they run concurrently they're used in different uh, different levels at different times but, but before um, I mean there's a lot of evidence that m most of the, uh, the belligerents despite the Hague Convention they dabble with non-lethal irritant gases really early uh, August 1914 September 1914 uh, there's a chap professor Herbert Brereton Baker and Jocelyn Thorpe at Imperial College, quite a famous story, is that they demonstrated, um, you know, xylobromide um, tear gases to the War Office in, in late 1914. The plans were shelved, but there was a clear consciousness of thinking we, this may be used, and it was parked um, for use. And I think the quote was that um, Morris Hankey, who was Secretary of the Committee of Imperial Defence at the time, he said, uh, we, we have to be ready to retaliate in case the, they, the Germans start to use it. Um, but the Germans, they they had invested heavily in this. And remember, I said there was a chap called um, uh, Ludwig Haber. We were going to come back to his uh, that name. But Fritz Haber of Haber Haber Fritz Haber was his father, and he was um, he's called the grandfather of chemical warfare, running the Kaiser William uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, um, and he pushed forward the, the German program, took taking that natural resource out of German industry, all the tentative steps and research to develop it. Um, Tear gas is believed to have been used against the British in against um, the British in shrapnel shells in October 1914 at New Chapelle, uh, Newport in early 1915, and then against the Russians it was certainly used in uh, 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 Bilimov in um, January 1915 as well. It, that should have set the alarm bells off really for hey this is this is something that's going to happen, um, but um, but. The first real industrial use, despite that dabbling, the first real industrial use was 22nd of April 1915, where Haber's team released, I think it was 168 tonnes of gas, um, over 5,700 cylinders. That's not a mean feat, getting those cylinders into place, you know, for 
for an attack, but it was primarily against the Algerian, uh, the, the French 45th Algerian Colonial Division um, um, on the first day, and then a couple of days later it was uh, against the Canadians on their their, their right. Uh, and that's where we get the stories of you know the orders to reurinate on socks and bandages to counter the surprise attack. But I tell you what, with the um, just the, some of the research I did in terms of the the rapidity of how the British Canadians and the French responded to that is is quite remarkable. And the awareness of what was going on in terms of how you counter this um, was um, was there. But but I think a question goes back: why why didn't we really see it happening? Uh, um, I think Tim Cook in his in his book, which is a really great book on chemical on chemical warfare, how it impacted the Canadians. No place to run. He he sort of. Um, he highlights the fact that all the warnings were there, but actually at that point in time, <clears throat> we had no reference to what gas warfare was going to be about. It was about tear gas and stink bombs. Well, that that we we could probably deal with that. He didn't. They didn't see it coming that you know five thousand seven hundred cylinders of one hundred sixty eight tons of gas was going to be released on a, on a very small front, which would poison and and and, and break it down. But um, but to uh, the, you know, cutting the, the the gas story down um, to the the, the long and short of it, we, we managed to get through Second Eep um, with a, a great deal of inventiveness, a program to put in place to develop respirators, and then the British counter counter um, uh, the, the 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 German use of chlor uh, chlorine gas by releasing their own cloud offensive. Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Fox and his special brigade um, at, at Luz, um, you know, where we where we released cylinders in the front line, which which troops didn't like. I mean, to bring in um, you know all those cylinders for a, for an attack meant that a, a they were probably carrying parties to get the stuff into the trench in the first place, and now you're sitting in a trench with uh, on on you know on top of uh, all these cylinders of chlorine, which is um, which is not the safest place to be. You know, take one shell to uh, to do that. Uh, you know, to hit hit one of these, and and accidents are accidents happen. Um, but um, but. Um, it's not really effective. It, 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 it's gas, gas, the, the genie sort of out the bottle now because respirators have been developed. But false genes released by the Germans in December 1915. The French use um, uh, false gene in 1916, the British a little bit later. Um, uh, but in mid-1916, the Germans shift to shell. Um, so there's the next step in the story of, of how gas warfare develops. Uh, they put it into shells. Um, you, the problem is with shells, you need a lot more shells to deliver uh, you know, tons and tons of um, uh, of, uh, of of gas effect, uh, and we'll, we'll, I'll just cover a little bit on that in, in, in a second. But uh, but the British come up with really inventive stuff for offensive capability. The Livens projector it, it pumps. Uh, you're able to pump you know canisters of thirty pounds of false gene gas into the German lines from you know uh, late 1916 into 1917. Um, uh, the Battle of uh, Arras is the uh, is the first time it's used in real anger. Um, but the Germans come up with a mortar, which only does 16 pounds. But just to put it in perspective, the uh, in a shell, uh, an ordinary shell, you're talking pounds, you know, a couple of pounds of gas. Living projector being able to project 30 pounds of gas, it's quite phenomenal. And then we get um, um, the the story of um, diphenylchlorazine. That's the sneezing powder, vomiting um, uh, type uh, gas that comes in. Uh, and mustard gas finally comes in in July 19. 17 yeah just um just at the um the onset of the third battle of beep but the french and british are way behind in in all of this it's always a chasing game for them and uh, and it's not until late 1918 when um uh, the british actually for september 1918 i think the british start using uh, mustard gas for the first time although they uh, their own mustard gas although they had used i think some captured mustard gas that they got from the germans but we didn't have our own capability for quite a while 
Now, to end the story of how gas evolves is you've got to leave it in on a, on a hanging note, I think, is because in 1918, in October 1918, during the, the, the time of the last 100 days, during the time when Germany starts to, to fold and break, it breaks down to the, towards the armistice, um, uh, the Allies do have a couple of tricks up their, their sleeve, which I think if the war had gone into 1919, would have, would have been absolute game changes in, in uh, how gas would, would, would have impact on the battlefield. And that's the introduction of lewisite, which is a vesicant. Again, it's a bit like mustard gas, but it's the next level up. It's ga mustard gas plus plus. Um, and, um, and what that does, it does the same thing. It creates plus, uh, blisters. It's far more uh, lethal. Um, and actually one of the things that it does, it, um, uh, in those blisters, when if you were, if you were injured by a lewisite, a bit of lewisite um, uh, being on your um, uh, uh, oil getting on your arm, when you were taken to hospital, uh, when that blister burst, that blister is poisonous. It comes out as vesicant, so it would poison your medical teams, um, it, and it have a real impact on on uh, I think attrition. It will have a real impact on the fact that by that stage of the war, very very in fact very early in the war, the Germans had a lack of rubber, so the respirators were capability was going downhill. Ours was coming up, and we also had diphenylamine chlorazine, which is, um, uh, if you like, the sneezing vomiting gas plus plus, which um, which would penetrate the masks. And the combination of those two, I think, meant that the Allies had absolute advantage if the war had gone on uh, a little bit later uh, into nineteen nineteen. So, um, if you like, a ch a, the, the the chronology the chronology of the the war is Germans always taking the lead, but uh, the final sprint at the end, they they peter off, uh, they lose the momentum. Despite their capacity, they've, they've just run out, run out of steam and, and the Allies had the advantage. So moving to the defence, what type of countermeasures were used by combatant forces and how effective were they? Yeah, they, 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 in fact, the, the fundamental areas of protection or, or in the United States, anti-gas defence, um, they're, they're exactly the same today. And what you've got to do is you've got to be able to sense the fact there's a, uh, there's a threat out there in the first place. You understand it's there. Um, in, uh, then you've got to be able to protect put your, your own person then you've got to protect collectively so how do you how do you fight as a group uh, or a force if if um the protection fails um medical chemistry need to be in place so is that prophylactic where you give somebody something beforehand to stop it happening like ammonia capsules or, or whatever um or um um, or is it treating casualties when that protection's failed? Hazard management is cool, is, is the, the area where we talk about it's cleaning up after the threat. And that's pretty, that's really applicable for mustard gas, which hangs around a long time on your clothes and gets back into the, the casualty clearing stations. And obviously it's knowledge sharing as well, which is telling other people about it. And, but I think what, what one of the things that happened is that after second, as gas is introduced on a industrial scale in second heat, the British reaction is pretty quick. And I did an article in Stand 2 recently, which, which just focused on those first few months in 1915. But the whole way they got an organization together um, with people on the front line, people like Lieutenant Colonel George Naismith, um, Canadian officer who sort of identifies its gas, quickly turns it around, briefs GHQ, GHQ put out instructions. They set up a mobile laboratory in pretty short order. and. Um, but they get us basically a team of old old boys network, chemical people, um, professors from all over the place who a lot of them know each other and they all come together to work work in um, the, the laboratory and also back at um, the, in Millbank, um, the Royal Medical Army College at Millbank. Um, 
they then talked to the universities. They completely set up a whole structure for um, for developing a countermeasure and taking it forward very, very quickly. Uh, a few other names is uh, Colonel um, uh, Louis, Jack uh, Louis, Louis Jackson, Royal Engineers. People will recognize him from um, the support he's given in the past to um, uh, setting up the offensive capability. He takes that off to the uh, Ministry of Munitions. And uh, bearing in mind as well, we're trying to fit the whole gas warfare capability now into a supercharged procurement program. That you know, we've got. We're trying to equip Kitchen's army here. We're trying to. Uh, well, the shell shell scandal is looming. That's going to come first and foremost. Where do you fit in the fact you've got to start building respirators? You know, build bags for the respirators. Where are you going to? Where are you going to get your chlorine gas from for offensive capability? All has to be developed in. But um, uh, but the chap who who's, uh, fundamentally takes it forward for the, the protection side countermeasures is a guy called Colonel William Horrocks. And he does a fantastic job in getting a team together, working with all the, the uh, academic um, uh, areas, industry, to set up this um, uh, this uh, this requirement to get protection out there. Um, and uh, what's remarkable though is I think they they produce about three hundred thousand cotton face masks in the first week, and that's that's I don't know how we would do that these days, but um, but uh, uh, and they produce almost two million within a month, but. By the time they've developed the uh, or delivered those uh, two million uh, cotton padded face masks, which are pretty rudimentary in protection of soaking them in in some form of ammonia or um, um, uh, uh, sulf uh, sulfide. Um, um, by that time, um, we've got new gas masks coming out. So we've got smoke helmets. It, it just advances so quickly. Uh, and, and that's because they've got a good good laboratory on, on in the front line. They're, they're trying to work out what the, the Germans are going to do next. Um, and but the, the the biggest challenge I think in se in second eats right at the beginning is um, is for the medical services. Can you imagine being a doctor or a medic or a stretcher bearer and just not seeing this before? What, you know what's wrong with this person? I just you know, I, you know how do we treat them? Um, and um, that that gets accelerated quite quickly, and in fact, not just the instructions of GHQ, but what I found in some of my research was the journal. It's, it's remarkable sometimes the journal, the Royal Army Medical Corps, which was sort of um, a bit of a social, their social network, uh, social um, network at the time, I suppose. Um, you know, a lot of it was um, was was put put out with instructions on how to treat gas warfare victims in in the op as open source in in their if, if you like in their in their magazine. But say um, helmets, uh, smoke helmets, um, hyper helmets, smoke helmets um, became the P helmets, the famous one you'll see normally from the, you know, the big goggle eyes um, coming through um, into 1915 uh, very, very quickly. Um, but I think one of the fundamental things is that, that the reason they had to get that in place was by the time the Germans used false gene in December 1915, that would have been catastrophic if they had not had the P helmet in place. It didn't afford full protection against false gene, but it was enough to get us through and in fact very early into 1916 uh, a p helmet is because it's uh, it's infused with the uh, phenate it becomes the ph helmet because the russians actually work out the fact that if you put hexamine in the mix it stops a lot of phosgene as well but the parallel work that went on in 1915 which was vital and saved the day in my opinion in uh, in terms of countering gas warfare was a chap called lieutenant edward harrison he built through 1915 was in parallel to all the other work going on was establishing a a, a concept of a tower respirator which is a, a sort of stack system in a in, in in a tube um which layered filtering which meant that you could put in more and more filters for uh, more and more gas as it went in that becomes the small box respirator which by the time it's issued in 1916 going through it wasn't really in, there in great numbers for the Somme, but afterwards 
it then negates the use of German uh, the uh, uh, cloud gas, certainly. Uh, and it's, I think, one of the reasons why the Germans then start to switch to um, shells in 1916. They, they move across the shells, um, and, um, but they continue the, the lethal shell activity right through, right through the war to the end of the day. And, it, um, and people might, might have heard of Yellow Cross, all the different cross names, which can be quite confusing with, with German shells. But essentially, Yellow Cross denotes mustard gas, Green Cross shells contain lethal gases like phosgene, diphosgene, chloropicrin, and the blue cross shells was the irritant uh, vomiting gases like um, uh, diphenylchlorazine. Um, but the ability, as I said before, the ability to lay down poisonous gas by shell was really difficult. You had to fire a lot, a lot of shells to get the same effect as, you know, 100, 100 um, uh, uh, cylinders out there. But then finally, the, you know, the, the next step where um, all the work that goes through the small box rate is becoming so effective and the medical service is learning to deal with chlorine, lethal gas uh, poisoning. Uh, in July 1917, the Germans then introduced mustard gas, whole different kettle of fish. It, the, the respirator doesn't protect you against it. It gets on your skin, gets into your clothes. Um, uh, medical staff touching a casualty with covered in mustard gas where they themselves get uh, uh, um, get burnt by the, the the liquid. So so there's a new dimension to medical the, the medical countermeasures and decontamination required from July 1917 because it is you've got to clean everyone down. So you start to see decontamination hospitals or uh, filters for hospitals where there are decontamination sections and that's very much still what we do today. You have a decontamination system uh, should you have people who are contaminated. Uh, but by late 1918, the, the, the small box respirator was about to be developed into, uh, I think, what they called a green band version, which was superior in every way to the Germans by that stage. So combine that with our countermeasures, which were in good shape, I think, um, um, uh, to complement our, uh, I think, advancing offensive capability. We talked about lewisite and dif uh, diphenylamine chlorazine in, into 1919. The British, uh, the British and the, the Allies certainly had the advantage. So you've mentioned it already. But what, what were the casualties of gas warfare during the conflict? Yeah, I know. I know. I've focused really on a lot of it on the British side, and and it's quite often we we do look at just one side. We tend to focus on one side of the wire. And that's where where um, a lot of my work has has, has been has been going. Uh, I think there's be there's a really great um, area there where we could start to expand on. I think looking into other areas, um, and I think this is where one of the things the conference in October will be quite good because I think it'll allow us to open up some other doors that we've not maybe look through before but um i think the overall casualties in the war um again it's very difficult to pin it down but um there are some who uh, reckon it's as high as one million uh but when you take that in you know as a percentage it's still around the the 10 percent mark i think um britain 186,000 casualties germany 107,000, france 130,000. the us funnily enough um had uh, 75,000 casualties from gas, uh, which is unusual because actually they don't come into the war until obviously late into, uh, you know, coming into 1917. And they're actually inheriting a lot of our equipment as well. But there's something funny that goes on with um, the way um, the, the US tend to suffer more and more casualties uh, or uh, proportionally than, than the others. But we, in that figure of a million, we have no idea of Russian numbers, um, they're think, thought to be extremely high because their equipment was inferior. Um, and, um, and clearly there were also gas casualties on the Italian front that we, we don't really um, know about. Um, uh, and again, it's probably an avenue that needs to be opened up, but um, you know, some, of the, some of the battles that where gas was used in Italy. Uh, but on the Western front, um, 
it, second eat was a classic example. We just really don't know how many are in there. We can have estimates which which vary from fifteen thousand. I think that includes the French casualties as well to five thousand. But actually, in the official history, again going back to the myth, um, I, I think in um, uh, that you're talking low numbers that um, um, uh, le less than ten percent of casualties in second eat died. Uh, and when you go into um, the um, the use of uh, gas from the British perspective at, at uh, Luce, um it's only documented there are seven fatalities at, uh, from gas at, at Luz on the British side, which is quite remarkable when you consider the stories of it. It was terrible, the gas blew back on us and everything else. But bearing in mind, again, that's the caution you have to exercise, that someone who was gassed, died of gas uh, during, a, during the Luz attack, um, subsequently his body, you know, the body wasn't found, uh, subsequently, um, well, it, recovering the dead, how do you tell that it was a gas victim and uh, uh, hadn't been killed by 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 shell or bullet? That that was the trouble. But uh, but remarkably, no numbers in 1915 recorded whether that's true or not. I think you have to you have to be in there. But but it's again, I go back to the importance of the um, the P helmet respirator um, because when when um, the Germans released phosgene for the first time, uh, it's uh, up at the on 19th December 1915. Um, they released 9,300 cylinders, 177 tons. It's a mixture because you have to mix phosgene with chlorine because it's it's not it's too light. It just it'll just disappear. Um, so you have to mix it with the chlorine to to to, to carry it to bond to bond it to, to move. but in that one attack uh, on that evening um, there were a thousand gas casualties uh, of 120 uh, died they were mostly within the 49th west riding division uh, there are suggestions that um, uh, because the germans hadn't done a gas attack for a long time gas discipline was a little bit lax um, and it was in the early morning it, it, it when the germans attacked so um but it just proved that all, all of a sudden you're using a nastier gas now false gene which is um, which is 10 times more um, um, uh, lethal than, than that, but but actually through till August 1916, the number of gas casualties are are are, are uh, recorded as about being around 4,200, of which a thousand die. So now we're up to 24%. So you can see that the phosgene side of it is is quite is quite uh, phenomenal. But they are cloud attacks. The the Germans when they move away to the shell, I don't think it has the same impact um, later on. But but again, it's that that um, insidiousness of Fosgene, it's the man walking back to rest, the man digging a trench later on after the battle who succumbs to Fosgene because it, um, it affects you later. But as we saw the summer of 1916, the Germans do move to, to gas shells. Um, but very quickly, um, we see through August um, uh, and, and into September, the uh, casualty fatality rates from gas falling from 10% in, in July, 7% in August, 3% in September. That shows you that I think the small box race spreader starts to come in. It becomes really fantastically effective, but also the medical services uh, are, are gaining more. But in overall, though, when we look at, um, remember the British Empire official gas casualties were around 186,000. The greatest proportion of these, over 124,000 of them, were by must gas, and that's from July 1917. So, you know, the um, you know, 80% um, of the casualties of of the the, the war are um, are pr pretty much in in the the last five percent of the um, uh, of the um, uh, of the war itself. Um, so, but when you when you look at that though, only about two percent of the people who, are, who I say only very loosely, but only two percent of um, those those affected by mustard gas. Uh, would have died just over 2,300. 
the remaining 36,000 casualties of this period were, again, down to lethal gas. They were using different combinations of gas at different times. Predominantly, that was delivered by Shell. Um, and uh, out of the 2,000 of those that died, that equates to about 5%. So um, a, 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 a rule of thumb is that in the First World War, phosgene was the killer. It killed most people. But mustard gas was the more prominent injury. It was the more attritional and took troops away from your um, your um, your front line for however long it, it took to recover from it. So, uh, so there's the there's the, the you overlay the chronology. Uh, what we're talking about there in terms of the casualties, you can directly reflect that back to the respirator coming in, the medical services improving, when new gases are introduced. It's sort of a bit of a seesaw um, uh, sinal wave of um, of um, uh, what we call a sawtooth um, uh, development in in encountering. Uh, so enemy enemy does something, you react. Enemy does something else, you react to that. Enemy does something else. Eventually, in the war, as I said, in into 1918, the the Germans lose the lead of the race, and the the Allies take it on. So, what was the tactical and military impact of gas warfare during the Great War? Uh, I think it's critical when you release a new form of weapon like gas in uh, second eat the germans did for example um uh, i to be honest i don't think they were as well prepared um for, for its use as you might have expected i don't think they had adequate protection for the troops they didn't really have any strategic how it fitted into a strategic objective in fact there were some commanders who german commanders who just wouldn't didn't want to use it because it was you know unsporting or, or um, ungentlemanly uh hey conventional or not um and um and actually, one of the things is they didn't. It, secondly, they didn't have the reserves in place to exploit it in any case. Uh, it could be, you know, pressures from the the Eastern Front or whatever. But in nineteen April nineteen fifty, I think that was the one and only opportunity um, that uh, that that they were absolutely overwhelmed by the catastrophic success that they gained on the, the first couple of days. But they didn't follow it through. After that, the genie was sort of out of the bottle, which is a, a, a sort of a, a weird analogy to use. But uh, but. What I mean by that is the the from then on very quickly allied countermeasures and developing it kept kept a pace with what what was known as German frightfulness. Now this was all around the same time the Lusitania was sunk. German frightfulness. Um, in fact, there's a very famous um, picture of um, uh, um, uh, French soldiers killed by gas on the front of the Daily Mirror in in May 1915, which is you know. Um, you know, uh, Germany devilry be by name. It's um, and then subsequently the Lusitania sunk. So it's not very good PR for the Germans in, in any case, anyway. Um, but um, uh, Edward Spears, who gave a lecture to the Western Front Association back in 1915, said that um, um, uh, that he, uh, part part of that um, lecture he gave us was is that he said that gas wasn't a war winner. It was not a war winner, but it wasn't a failure either. And I think that's absolutely spot on. The big thing about gas is that um, irrespective of the attrition that it caused later in the war particularly with mustard gas um the, the big thing is that gas caused fear gas caused fear in your troops it forced you to put respirators on it forced you then to put your respirator on which made you clumsy you couldn't communicate how does an officer shout orders through a muffled you know a respirator despite the rest of the you know the noise of battle around you 
if it leaked, it caused panic. Um, you had to be absolutely trained to quite a high degree to make sure you didn't panic with um, with all the other smells on the battlefield. And there's a there's a funny thing which is um, uh, at the um, uh, uh, Memorial Museum, 1917 in uh, Pashadel, up at uh, Zonovic, is um, um, they've got a really good um, little section on gas, and they've got the smell the gas, and it's so you can smell chlorine, which is, smells like a swimming pool, as, as most people will know. Uh, but uh, you know, knowing that um, uh, some gases were um, you know freshly mown hay for false false gene, and um, how on earth you would smell that in a battlefield, which you, you're in a smelly trench and and everything else. But that you know that was one of the things. But it 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 created fear it was something that i think um as someone who's been in the military i think it's one thing that does cause uh, the greatest amount of fear to be honest but but later on in the war i think in terms of the tactical application gas was then integrated into all arms planning it became part of the sum of the effect you were trying to achieve um but it, it didn't create i think any major operation advantage on its own but it was seen from the casualty levels um you know it's it had really attritional impact particularly after mustard gas where we you know we, we the british we we sort of get 80 percent of our casualties in the the last 20 percent of the war and it's mostly due to mustard gas but um um, but gas probably reaches pinnacle in March and April 1918. The Germans absolutely went to town on it, um, using it for their spring offensive. Um, British casualties rose to sort of perhaps, uh, I think, six and a half, seven thousand a week uh, through the spring just from gas. Um, but without being too counterfactual, it'd been, it would actually quite um, a very serious situation if the Germans had been able to sustain that rate of gas operations beyond May 1918 and continue to inflict casualties at that rate. Um, it, it, even though by then the British medical systems uh, uh, were, were getting really effective at returning gas victims to, to duty. But, but militarily, though, I think what is really overlooked is that we tend to quite often, as we do as, as doing research and being uh, historians, is that we tend to focus on the war itself. But I think what's overlooked is the effect of the gas debate had following the armistice. And clearly the Allies had the um, the aging capability by the end of the war, I think, with uh, in in both offensive and defensive capability, but two camps formed uh, after the armistice um, as to how gas warfare should be taken forward. And as you can imagine, there's probably there was a huge pacifist lobby that took the stance that gas is absolutely dreadful. It's a modern industrial uh, scale, part scale, part of uh, modern industrial scale warfare that needed to be curbed, particularly in the view of the fact that um, potentially, although this was the war to end all wars. The next war, we people could probably see that civilians were going to probably come into the into the um, the, the scope of combat, uh, you know, far away from the battlefront. But but the counter argument was presented by many advocates of gas warfare that we've that that have been involved in the whole process of development of um, of gas warfare through the First World War was that gas was humane. And I think that's a, it sounds like a really strange thing to say, but in their minds it was. The very percentage we were talking about, you know, if 50% of people on the battlefield roughly were killed by, uh, believed to be killed by artillery, the fact that only less than 1% of British casualties um, were um, were, um, were were caused by gas, so you'd think, well, actually, well, actually, that is quite immense because at least you're not killing someone. You're not, it's not taking the whole perspective of the 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 the, um, the the dreadful nature of gas and how it affects you, but um, but but this became a major feature of the Treaty of Versailles, and um, and the debate really, uh, and this is this is hopefully something we might be covering at the conference. That this is a whole story itself. It's to do with um, how do you curb Germany's ability to produce chemicals, should they wish to to do chemical warfare in the future. 
uh, you'd have to take down their textile manufacturers, so the, the um, interest in Gemeinschaft on the Rhine. But if you take out their Rhine capabilities, how do they retain an industrial base to maintain economic strength, to be able to pay back the costs of the war imposed on them by the Treaty of Versailles, which means that France and Britain get their money back, and then they're able to pay back the funding lent to them by the United States. There's a whole cycle of, um, you know, how do you, how do you interrupt the fact that you, you've got to stop Germany potentially having a capability in the future? So this sets up a whole bunch of conferences, Washington, 1921, Geneva, 1925, um, which are ineffective. It's a, it, there is, there is, I think is as effective as the Hague Convention, 1907, uh, stood. No, no, there was no real agreement. In fact, the, the agreement that came out was, I think essentially was the, there would be no first use agreement. And that's a term we still use today that, that generally it's no first use agreement is the, we won't use it first. If you use it, we'll use it. Uh, and, and nations would then therefore maintain their own gas warfare capability, defensive and, uh, and offensive to meet their own security requirements. And that's why Port and Down continues. It's one of the things I didn't mention in Port and Down develops from 1916 onwards, uh, where it's specifically that designed to, uh, to look at, um, uh, uh, gas warfare, offensive and, and defensive capabilities. So, um, you know, that, that continues the work of the British, um, uh, anti-defense, uh, gas defense through, uh, the interwar period, which means that we're able to issue 38 million gas masks, which are really effective gas masks as a legacy from the First World War uh, as we go into, um, I I as the Second World War looms. And as we know, um, you know, uh, uh, I think it's one of those things, Another is, is it myth? Is it just a discussion topic that remains unanswered? It still needs to be talked about. But but gas, um, certainly through the interwar periods, still gets developed. Germany develops nerve agents, you know, sarin and tab and very nasty bits. But um, um, uh, as World War II comes along, um, there are some historians who say, hey, um, well, gas warfare wasn't used in, um, in the Second World War. Um, you have to say the Holocaust, that was chemical warfare. The Zyklon, the Zyklon, Zyklon B um, is um, a, a byproduct and a legacy of the work that was started uh, by by German um, you know, chemists back in the First World War. They didn't use the Germans didn't use it uh, chemical weapons on the battlefield, but the the debate there is that okay, why didn't they use it? Is it because of the Geneva Treaties, nineteen twenty five? Probably not. No one agreed to anything pretty much in those in those um, conferences in the in the 20s and 30s. Um, is it Hitler's disdain for gas having been a casualty of it in, in the First World War? Um, possibly. But I think when it pushes into the fact that um, it's the, the lack of that treaty agreement through uh, following the, the Treaty of Versailles into the League of Nations into the 20s and 30s means that I think the Germans um, probably thought that the Allies were maybe 15 years ahead of them because the, the, the everyone continued to continue to de develop their their capabilities. And one of the things they had been doing, the Germans had been working with the Soviet Union um, in the 20s as well, um, um, and their knowledge of Soviet capability in stockpiling I think may well have been a um, you know the fact it's the um, it's the the, the the hidden ace up your sleeve that the that the Germans didn't really know that um, that uh, uh, how far be, how far ahead they might have been particularly with nerve agents um, they that, um, that, that there's a whole bunch of, of reasons why um, and this as I say is a story in its own right and something we might like to bring out at the, the conference but but again I go back to the fact that the fact that every civilian is issued with a, a gas mask in 1938 during the Munich crisis it's um, it's it's pretty much that is a small box respirator which is um, which has had a little bit of modification but there is a direct legacy of what happened in the Great War which we overlook sometimes which continues through to the Great War and indeed that 
actually, you know, the threat of chemical weapons is still out there today, and it continues through to today. But, but um, from my perspective, um, as uh, someone who's worked in in the protection area uh, for for chemical and biological uh, warfare, um, I think it's just remarkable what these people did in 1915 that got us to a point that uh, I called it "survive to fight." That used to be the old book we used to carry around that, that told us how to to fight in, in chemical uh, in a chemical environment, and uh, uh, and that that was the, the title of, of of some of the research I've done is that um, it's just a remarkable story and. What we shouldn't ever underestimate is the the trauma and the um, the destruction that it caused to people in the battlefield uh, and post war as well. Although forty woolbines a day would be um, have have a significant impact on on um, on on health issues. So my final question is: Where can people learn more about gas and your work? Uh, okay, um, well, I've done a, an article in Stand Two, which is uh, called "Survive to Fight," which is all about 1915 and and how we, we the British and Canadians, um, got our act together and and I think um, importantly made the first defeat on the um, on uh, the German gas warfare capability. Um, but in the background of reading that, if people are interested in gas warfare, I, I always must admit in anything I'm looking at, I always go back to the history, uh, the official histories first, just to see. Where does it fit into the big picture? So go and look at Second Eat. What did they really say about it? Um, but um, but uh, uh, he, he became Major General. He was Lieutenant Colonel in the war. Charles Fawkes, uh, who was the uh, commander of the Special Brigade, or Special Companies, became the Special Brigade, the, the British offensive gas capability. He wrote a book called Gas, the Story of the Special Brigade. That's a really good read in terms of lots of bits and figures. He's got some really good information there. Uh, and also read that in combination with Ludwig Haber's Harb um, uh, The Poisonous Cloud, which I, I, I think is a little bit of an expensive book now. It's, it's, it's very sought after. But if it's in a library, that, that, that has a really good um, impression of what it was like for not just for the allies but but also a good perspective from the german um uh, side of things uh, if you want to read about how it fits into combat itself i think you can't go uh, any better than tim cook's no place to hide uh, primarily focused on the canadians but it's a really good story end to end of the warring uh, and chemical warfare uh, uh, robert harris and jeremy paxman higher form of killing um that's a that's a really good generalization read um which is which is um uh, which might cover some of the um the basic aspects but that takes it through the second world war and and, and to certainly send up to modern day and finally um edward spears a history of chemical and biological weapons now what why, why did it leave him to last well i think he's gonna be our keynote speaker at the conference uh on saturday the 15th of october and i think a gas warfare conference is something that um that uh uh, we've been looking to do for a long uh, long time at the national army museum so capacity for getting people along to look at it we have a a, a number of um, i think excellent speakers being lined up but it gives the opportunity then for people to maybe if you've seen something or heard something or heard something during um, this podcast is that you might like to take that and come along and say right let's throw it into the mix and rocky why do you say that and we can we can uh, we can take it forward but gas warfare fascinating subject and uh, something that um, it, it's always there in the background of every story you tell about the great war rocky thank you very much for your time You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman. 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>